It's Friday, January 6th. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Ray Suarez, filling in for Mike Pesca, who realized he couldn't wait for a week when the world wasn't going to hell in a handcart before taking some time off. He'll be back next week. If you're one of those people who still worries about it in 2023, you may have noticed the People's Republic of China, home to more than one out of every six people on the planet, is on fire with COVID. After pursuing a policy called Zero COVID, which saw the country impose strict limitations on testing, on movement, on access to public spaces in order to hold down the number of infected, hold down the number of dead, in early December, the government of Xi Jinping decided to do an abrupt about-face and, in effect, let it rip. Hospitals are jammed, crematoria are overwhelmed with the number of bodies, offices are empty because so many people are calling in sick. The Secretary General of the World Health Organization is pleading with the Chinese government to be honest about the number of cases and the official death toll. In a country of 1.4 billion people three years into the pandemic, the official toll is 5,259. Call me cynical. I think it's a little low. The country says it's had fewer than half a million cases of COVID since the whole thing began and detected 9,000 new cases just yesterday. The U.S., by comparison, has had at least 103 million cases in the same three-year span. I'm just back in the States from a little over four months living and working in China, teaching at NYU in Shanghai, and the whiplash of watching this change is wild. When I got there in August, I arrived in an empty, locked-down, plastic-sheeted Shanghai airport, was screened and tested and screened and tested, and locked in a hotel room for 10 days, unable to leave the room or even open the door for anything other than more tests and temperature checks and three times daily food drops. You had to wear a mask in all public spaces when they finally let you out, Test constantly to keep a health code verifying your negative status up to date. And you had to show that code to enter the subway, a restaurant, a shopping mall, or a supermarket. And of course, to go to work. A guard out front of NYU Shanghai checked my health code every day as I walked through the front door of the school. It got tedious. Sometimes I'd look at my code and realize I had to test right away, or else my time signature would change and it would be tough to get into work the next morning, and it would be a pain in the neck. So I'd head out onto the streets, app in hand, looking for a testing center with late hours. There were testing booths scattered all over giant Shanghai, a city of 25 million people. Think of it, three New York cities, a city with more people than the entire state of Florida, an ocean of dense urban form. You'd get online, One person, covered head-to-toe in protective gear, would scan the health code on your phone. Then you'd stop at the next part of the booth, where another hazmatted worker would slather his or her hands with sanitizer, break open a swab, swish around in the back of your throat, break off the cottony tip and drop it into a test tube with a half a dozen other swab tips. They'd test the results from the whole tube, and you'd get a renewed bright green code, and the number 24 on your phone, meaning you tested negative in the last day. 
Factories closed. Apartment buildings were sealed off. During the World Cup, an expat soccer fan moved from sports bar to sports bar, eventually tested positive, and sent health officials scrambling on a wild chase looking for thousands of so-called close contacts. And the bars themselves were closed. Then came late November. People finally had enough. My neighborhood was the epicenter of Shanghai's pushback against the COVID restrictions. Shouts for Xi to resign, chants to end the restrictions, emboldened protesters refusing to follow police orders and go home. The Communist Party Congress that anointed Xi for an unprecedented third term in the fall had announced COVID zero was staying in effect. In case you doubted it, the architect of the stringent lockdown measures that paralyzed Shanghai for months in the spring of 22 was promoted. The stock market fell, people rolled their eyes, and wearily got ready for another year of having their lives hemmed in by the restrictions. It seems like the break the pandemic had put on economic growth the flare-ups, the little eruptions of small-scale civil disobedience here and there, might have given the boys in charge the message. 2023 was going to be a mess, but by removing virtually all restrictions all at once, the normally cautious authorities in Beijing are rolling the dice. Public health experts around the world estimate a million to a million and a half people could die just in the coming months, as COVID-19 takes its long-delayed lap through this crowded country, which has low vaccination rates, especially among the old. They are staking the outcome on the belief that the most common variant in China is not that virulent, and it's a big gamble. I don't know, man. On the show today, post-truth politics the desire of Americans to send January 6th down the memory hole, and how Putin is gaslighting 150 million people about what he's doing in Ukraine. But first, Trump may refer to him as Mike Kevin, but so far, no one's called him Mr. Speaker. I'm going to talk Congress and the coming political season with veteran DC journalist Steve Clemens. That's coming up after a quick break. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. The new Congress came to Washington this week to start work and couldn't even get sworn in, much less start the new Republican majority's ambitious plans to push back against the Democratic Senate and at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, Joe Biden's Oval Office. The members-elect voted, voted, and 
voted some more, but a group of 20 Republican members refusing to vote for their leader, Kevin McCarthy, made it impossible for any candidate, including the actual leading vote-getter, the minority leader, the Brooklyn Democrat, Hakeem Jeffries, to get a majority of votes and become Speaker of the House. People who watch and write about politics for a living have been wild in their language, calling this a crisis, chaos, a humiliation, a political meltdown, a soap opera, a burlesque. They've used words like paralysis and, to be sure, For the first week, that looks true. But this Congress, the 118th since the Constitution was ratified, has two years to run. There's a Republican majority. There's uniform opposition in that majority to the Biden agenda. So is this a one-week glitch or a long-term problem that actually rates this breathless coverage? I've got a good guy to ask. Steve Clemens is editor-at-large for the global news service Semaphore a former Hill staffer, and the kind of person who talks to everybody worth talking to. Steve, welcome. My pleasure, Ray. What a great pleasure to be with you. It's a really weird time. A really weird time, yeah. (laughs) You've called the drama in the House chamber a historic game of chicken. All these ballots later, what do you make of what you've seen? Well, we've already made history, or they have. We've gone, uh, at this point, we're talking together, 11, 11 ballots. They're likely to be Uh, more ballots, and we don't know whether or not uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, essentially his right wing of the GOP are going to be able to align well enough to support him as their choice that can be elected as Speaker of the House. So what I make of it right now is we're seeing, we've, you know, talked to him, I want to be clear, everybody on the GOP side right now that is renegade and not supporting Kevin McCarthy looks at themselves as as their own kind of Joe Manchin. Senator Manchin created this kind of problem, we need to remind people, for President Biden and for Senate Leader Chuck Schumer, not in getting things going and being like, but in basically being the person who said, if I don't see it that way, I'm not going to go along. I'm not going to be compelled by the party to go away. I don't want to do. And to a certain degree, these legislators, about 20 of them, are saying we don't want to be cajoled to move to support someone we don't trust, we don't like, and we think will be giving away what they care about. So I just want to you know, put that on the table that there are substantive and personal differences between uh, Kevin McCarthy and those not supporting him. But I think they've seen um, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, become very, very powerful at being that deciding vote. This group has become very, very powerful in these first days. Any fractured coalition might be able to fall back on that old saw, the things that unite us are more important than the things that divide us. But in this case, given the personalities involved, isn't that true? Well, I think I think it is uh, uh, true. Um, but I think you've got certain people like Representative Matt Gates, who is trolling Kevin McCarthy right now in a sinister way, saying, why is he sitting in the Speaker's office? He doesn't deserve to sit in the Speaker's office. No one deserves to sit in the Speaker's office. You have Washington Post reporters up there right now where they've been asking the gallery, who controls the temperature? because there's complaints about the temperatures in the viewing gallery. Guess who? The speaker controls that, and there is no speaker. So you've got these fascinating little downstream dimensions of what's going on, and 
I mention that because when you sort of ask this question of, is there anything that might bring together this group? Certainly it's not um, uh, right now Joe Biden or, you know, any sort of external force that might might uh, uh, bring them together. We just don't know what it is, because right now, after all of these ballots, they've been willing to be more divided than united. Is there some karmic justice here? Uh Kevin McCarthy has cultivated, as much as he's tried to tame, the Lauren Boberts, the Matt Gateses, the Andy Biggs, the Chip Roys, all members who sought to block Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. Hasn't Kevin McCarthy been faced with the challenge of figuring out how to work with these people, even as he tries to achieve his own ambition here, and now he's finding out that no, being nice to them and giving them what they want doesn't work. Look, I, 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 you know, I don't feel sorry for Kevin McCarthy because he created these conditions. And it was one year ago today on January 6th that an insurrection against the Capitol, against those members serving and working to uh, certify the electoral votes in, in the election uh, in favor of Joe Biden, um, where an attack happened. And we have people in this group opposing him who were part of those kind of fanning the flames, if you will, of votes, of efforts to stop the certification of that election. And Kevin McCarthy gave them legitimacy. He gave them a place. He gave them cover. He gave them cover to such a point, even when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who many suspect is an active uh, embracing QAnon follower, a conspiracy theory follower, uh, in the U.S. Congress when she didn't necessarily get her committee. But see, nonetheless, he protected her in certain ways, and she is now protecting him. She's one of the people who is protecting Kevin McCarthy, um, which is quite unusual and probably uh, got promises from him to try and block legitimate and hard-serving members on the Democratic side blocking them from committees. One of these would be Adam Schiff, for instance. And I think look at that dynamic of what he has given away and how he has made the fringe in his own party more mainstream. He only whet their appetite and they want much more now because they have power given their numbers. And so Kevin McCarthy created this group. Adam Kinzinger, one of the outgoing members of Congress that just uh, left, uh, has said essentially the same thing, that Kevin McCarthy's lack of principle when it mattered has created this monster that right now is undermining his um, appetite and his ambition to be speaker. By doing what you just described, hasn't he also made the Republicans' burden of proof, if you will, that much heavier? They have to prove they can competently and effectively run the House or try to show that they're using their power to solve some of the problems facing the country. Does the current state of play in their conference uh, really tend more toward political performance art, full of symbolic gestures, spectacles, stunts, and opposition, rather than demonstrating, hey, we got this, we know what we're doing. You're absolutely right. I mean, former Speaker Paul Ryan has said exactly that, that the, that the downfall of the Republican Party right now is that it is electing to office people who care more about performance than they do about uh, carrying out policy or working to sculpt and do policy. And that question you ask is, I think, super important of, of can now Kevin McCarthy 
go from being someone who's coddled these performers and fringe people who don't care about getting to a legitimate result for the American people. Can he now come back and sell himself as someone who's a competent steward of this responsibility? I remember, you know, I was somewhat of a critic of Ariel Sharon, a former um, a politician in Israel who became prime minister. And Ariel Sharon, from my viewpoint at that at that moment, I was writing about global affairs, was on the far right and and was much more aggressive on Israel-Palestine issues, etc. But he withdrew from Gaza. He engineered the withdrawal from Gaza. And many people to his right were furious with him. And he said a statement that I'll never forget. He said to his critics on the right, when you sit behind the prime minister's desk, there are so many different issues to weigh against one another. You all have to stop uh, essentially being infantile and realize that we have to weigh responsibly different issues against them, you know, each other. To accept. And I thought it was one of the most mature and interesting political statements I'd ever heard someone I generally disagreed with make. I think Kevin McCarthy is now in a position after the last couple of years of wanting to be Ariel Sharon, but now he can't. He doesn't have the numbers and he can't be compelling. And if he were to become Speaker of the House, we don't know what will happen yet. At that moment, he will owe someone. Will he owe Matt Gates? Will he owe Chip Roy and, and, and this group and promise things uh, that make him look like, a, make the, the GOP look like an undependable, irresponsible steward of the party that might, uh, in fact, allow the full faith and credit of the United States to collapse with a debt ceiling collapse. That's that's what we're looking at. Or will he owe Democrats who will say, hey, if you promise us to take the debt ceiling off of the table, act responsibility on the uh, responsibly on these various things, we'll give you your, you know, uh, enough votes to get through, but then he will owe them. And so that's a fragile situation for him no matter what. I think that's why some people don't like him, even those to the right of him. They don't trust him because they've seen him behave different ways. They see him as a valueless person who doesn't have conviction on on any of these issues. And that is why at least a, uh, a certain contingent is, is, is working hard uh, to defeat him. Have we understated how hard it was going to be to be Speaker of the House, even if Kevin McCarthy won on the first ballot? I think all of us saw that there has been a growing group of players in the Republican caucus that are obsessed with Joe Biden's impeachment, that are obsessed with uh, Donald Trump having been uh, right, who are obsessed with denying the election results from the past, of obsessed with uh, making sure there are drastic uh, cuts using the debt ceiling debate to cut back Medicare and Social Security, other things. And this is a group essentially of hyper isolationists, some of them, who believe that no dollars should go to Ukraine, that should not be engaged abroad, that we have too many. So it's been a part of the American political spectrum for a long time, but it's never had its time in the sun right now. That's been there. And I think when we saw that the Republicans did so poorly. We haven't seen this kind of result in a long time where a uh, during a midterm election, an incumbent president uh, did so well, honestly. I mean, Joe Biden did remarkably well, even losing the chamber. And we haven't seen this kind of condition in a long time that that party then, if, if, if they had won by 30 or 40 vote, 
then we would not be in see- seeing this. But by basically having only a few seat uh, majority, it's now turned into a situation where any group can basically take the leader hostage. And I think some of us did see that coming. I don't think we saw it coming this early. We thought Kevin McCarthy, most of us, was probably uh, going to get this rather easily, that they would find other ways to uh, torment him. Um, so we were wrong on that. But I don't think most of us that pay attention to this were wrong in the fact that he would eventually be tormented. Donald Trump weighed in heavily on the side of Kevin McCarthy. It doesn't seem to have changed anything among the 20 no voters who, incidentally, are among the most outspoken supporters of Donald Trump on Capitol Hill. Did he end up being a non-factor? I think that's the biggest story of all of this, is that we're seeing Donald Trump's influence melt away in real time. Matt Gates, who is as obsequious to Donald Trump as any, actually came out and tweeted, well, President Trump was never really that good at HR anyway, meaning human resources. And and for Matt Gates to even joke about that. Now, Matt Gates is the person that put into nomination Donald Trump's name. They are playing around with Donald Trump. They are using Donald Trump as their chess piece, not the other way around. And that is the biggest change in power um, we've seen in this drama beyond Kevin McCarthy. And I think that that we have had many, many other conservative members uh, make the point, even Ryan Zinke, who served in his administration, has said that his influence is is waning. Well, look, in nominating processes, in leadership elections, sometimes it takes more than one ballot to clear a winning threshold. But in those cases, what people watch for is shifts, changes in the numbers with each succeeding vote. In the House this week, the totals were exactly the same almost every time. They kept going to new votes, but McCarthy wasn't getting any more votes. There were no cracks showing in the opposition. I kept wondering, why go through this? Why not adjourn sooner Start to whip the vote, start to twist some arms, try to get some movement behind the scenes instead of going through another roll call where Hakeem Jeffries is the leading vote getter and the putative speaker of the house, the guy who's already moved his furniture into the office, hovers around 200 votes well short of what he needs. I just didn't understand the tactics, the strategy, the politics behind it. Well, you hit on the second biggest story, I think, that we'll all be looking at for a long time, which is the story of Hakeem Jeffries. 212 votes over and over and over and over again, the entire Democratic caucus. Now, let me tell you, you might say, oh, of course, all the Democratic caucuses support Hakeem Jeffries. It's not a hard deal because the story of the last two years is how divided the Democrats are. How divided AOC is, you know, from the mansion wing, how or the centrist versus the progressives. And, and, and they've had their own version of this drama in the past. They have united behind, you know, a new speaker and they are sticking with that. So that's very, very important. But to your other point about behind the scenes, you know, LBJism, arm twisting, cajoling, seduction. Look, Kevin McCarthy's people. Uh, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, who's one of the leaders, co-chairs of the Problem Solvers Caucus, has been out there negotiating, trying to make deals, trying to work across the lines. They thought they were, in fact, making progress. Um, 
they they still do. The latest, uh, as a result of our conversation, or at the time of our conversation right now, Ray, you've you've got you had some people coming out and saying that Congressman Chip Roy and and Kevin McCarthy's team had a deal. Kevin McCarthy came onto a press call and said, "That's wrong. There is there is no deal." Uh, uh, that that the reporters on that were completely wrong, and so we even have the the misscripting and misfiring of potential progress. So I I agree with you. I'm I find it remarkable that essentially what has now happened. And I've asked people because when I thought you know the first day that this was not going to happen, I did a a show and I said at some point someone is going to step back to what I see as the obvious choice, which is Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise right now is the uh, uh, number two uh, to Kevin McCarthy, and he has a kind of creation story, which is important. He's well-liked by everyone. He has the same kind of policy perspectives overall that Kevin McCarthy was, but he survived an assassin's attack uh, some years ago. And I I was recently at a um, uh, the retirement ceremony of Congressman Brad Wenstrup, a, a Republican from Ohio, who's a doctor, and he was retiring not from Congress, but from the Republican uh, National Guard. And Steve Scalise came to that. And the room was packed with both Democrats and Republicans, something the public doesn't often see, paying tribute to Brad Wenstrup. And when Steve Scalise got mentioned because Brad helped save Steve Scalise's life, the room went into incredible applause. There's a story there that makes him an obvious potential um, alternative. And I think it's harder for the hard right to fight that kind of um, that that kind of allegory, if you will, and, and to come out ahead. Right now, Kevin McCarthy is someone that they're beating up to make a point about what kind of uh, legislators they want to be and where they're going to go. And it has nothing to do. They, these are all people who would rather see the U.S. government crash and burn than really make it work effectively. And so in that deal making that you're saying, why is that happening? You have to have people who want to come to a deal or at the end of the day, who are going to trust uh, Kevin McCarthy. And right now, even if they got a deal with uh, Congressman Chip Roy or a couple of their people believe there's still too many holdouts that are never Kevin McCarthy's as opposed to Kevin McCarthy, you know, if, if they, if they solve a certain issue. So you're hitting right on a big issue. We don't know the answer to it yet, but it's going to be uh, a challenge for them. Um, and in my view, they would be smart to begin looking at alternatives. Well, let me close where I began. When you hear this called a crisis, chaos, a humiliation, a soap opera, or burlesque, is this just overheated Capitol Hill hothouse stuff that doesn't really land, doesn't really matter? in Cedar Rapids and Chicago and San Antonio, or does it earn those descriptors? Look, I think the potential of Kevin McCarthy having to make an arrangement that essentially gives the crashing of the American economy a legitimate chance to happen is something that would wake a lot of people up. But I think it's going to take a long time in Cedar Rapids or St. Louis or Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where I have family and friends, to care about this moment. It's the downstream massive consequences of this that could matter to Americans. I think what we're seeing right now is a historic um, soap opera 
that's riveting because we haven't seen something like this in 164 years. But when you sort of look at that happening, it's reminding people, just as we saw with the vote certification, that American democracy is complicated. There are ways to that we have taken for granted certain rules and processes, and certain groups have found ways to to tweak them and to uh, cause moments of of crisis in this and to elevate their status to go from being the fringe to the center of attention. And that can have consequences. So, you know, in a way, Ray, it, it, it can both be, you know, a, a, a storm in a teacup if this all comes out well in the end. But there's possibility that we see tremendous negative consequences for the United States of America and Americans if this goes in a direction where essentially you give anarchists the power to direct where the country goes. And that's what's being debated, not the number of ballots that Kevin McCarthy loses. Steve Clemens is editor-at-large for the global news service Semaphore. He joined us as appropriate for a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor from Paris. Good to talk to you, Steve. Thank you, Ray. And now, the spiel. Remember where you were two years ago today? If you were busy doing your life, not sitting by a television or staring at your phone, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. I was on the National Mall, watching a large group of people in various kinds of army surplus military cosplay, festooned with patches, proclaiming allegiance to all kinds of politics and all kinds of delusion, heading for the Capitol. They were coming from a rally where they listened to a group of well-known, powerful people whipping them up with lurid tales of a stolen election, a conspiracy that reached to the highest echelons of the American establishment. And they, masked and costumed, carrying loony banners showing Rocky or Rambo with the head of the just-defeated president, were given the assignment of making it right, of stopping the steal. Because you'll never ever take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Well, you know what happened next. Without any sense of irony, the army of back the blue beat up the blue. But it's trying to get compliance, but this is now effectively a riot. 49 hours declaring it a riot. These would-be defenders of the Constitution try to stop the constitutionally required process for confirming the election of a president. They tried to subvert that same Constitution. People who, it is now said, were just tourists, making their opinions known, or trespassing, had canisters of noxious chemicals, bear spray, and mace and the like, to spray into the eyes of anyone who opposed them. People, we're now told, who just spontaneously decided to enter their house and got a little carried away. Somehow were moving with batons and riot shields and paramilitary precision up the stairs and into the halls of Congress. In fact, officers still remaining on the House floor 
in the, on the third floor to use the subway themselves. It's time to evacuate so we can secure the members on the other side. Copy. Now let me ask you something. If you're out with a bunch of friends and decide to change plans, it probably takes a little bit of negotiating and hemming and hawing to figure out where to go to dinner. It's unlikely you happen to have the materials handy to build a scaffold with a noose. It is a motif, a symbol of the age that you, citizen, are repeatedly told that things you saw are not the things you saw, that things that happened really didn't. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. The events of January 6th were so far removed from any precedence in American history that the reporters working the hill that day didn't even have a language for it. A big, violent crowd, a mix of plotters and hangers-on and carousing goofballs, were running through the halls of Congress, getting into confrontations with security, basically trying to stop the operation of government. It wasn't a coup. The QAnon shaman wasn't a party to an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. Nah, it was a lot simpler than that. This army of chaos wanted to make the machinery seize up just long enough, create just enough doubt, just enough disorder for powerful actors to make the process stop and keep Donald Trump president. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. And for the two years since, more than 140 members of Congress who were actively or passively a party to that process tried to convince you that you didn't see what you saw that the surplus store G.I. Joes tried to do. Well, they didn't actually try to do that. And now, the real unfairness, they say, is trying to investigate those people, put them on trial, and sometimes send them to prison. Unusually cruel. That's the title that we gave this report, because this is the treatment that we found of the pre-trial January 6th defendants being held right here in Washington, D.C., in the jail. Across the globe, in Russia, young men are returning to their hometowns scattered across that vast country in body bags, in urns, in coffins, and powerful actors are telling Russians that what they're seeing, they're not seeing. Because the Russian president controls a lot more of what happens day to day in his country than any American president ever has here. As we approach the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, wait, sorry, the special military operation, Putin can more successfully gaslight his people. With no checks on his power, he can send the Russian army to be savaged by Ukrainians defending their country. He can get half the country's cash reserves seized abroad. He can send people to jail for asking if that's the right thing to do. He can keep telling his people all is well 
as automotive assembly lines grind to a halt and thousands of factory workers are sent home, as foreign stores close and disappear from Russia's shopping malls, as tens of thousands of young men who don't want to take a chance on bleeding to death in the mud right next door rush out of the country, into any country that will have them, you have to wonder whether the gaslighting of Russia does have a sell-by date, just as Chinese leaders telling their people only a few thousand have died of COVID during the entire pandemic turns out to have had a sell-by date. The world is too wired, too complicated, too leaky to keep information bottled up permanently, and that's great. But the same technological revolution that's made it possible to know more, about more, and faster than has ever been possible in the history of the world also has the power to make us dumber instead of smarter. It allows us to ignore an uncomfortable world and take shelter in a steady stream of delusion. So be careful. If you haven't already made a New Year's resolution, forget the diet or dry January. Instead, be smarter about information. What you know, what you believe, how you got it, and why you believe it. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. I'm Ray Suarez. Mike Pesca will be back on Monday. Um Peru, G Peru, Du Peru. Thanks for listening. <laughs>